We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to John 15, verse 26. And we'll pick up there in a moment. If you're joining us for the first time or you've been out the last couple of weeks, we are currently in a section of the Gospel of John in which John is capturing, writing about his firsthand experience of the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So this is, these are the hours leading up to his arrest uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane and his uh, eventual uh, torture and execution on uh, the cross. So John uh, captures the, what is called the farewell discourse or Jesus' uh, sort of final instructions for his disciples. Uh, he sees much more clearly than they do what lies on the horizon that he's about to be arrested and crucified. And so he's giving them sort of his parting words, instructions. Here's what you're to do uh, after I am gone. And we've been working our way through that. We're picking up in uh, chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus continues his uh, exhortation with these words. He says, When the Advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about Me. And you also must testify, for you have been with Me from the beginning. All of this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do uh, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or Me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to Him who sent Me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for the Spirit for uh, the Spirit of truth that has um, come out from the Father uh, and has um, touched this broken world that has begun uh, opening eyes and transforming hearts. And uh, Lord, we're in this room this morning uh, because our eyes have been opened, our hearts have been transformed, uh, or perhaps we're just um, curious and feeling drawn to You and wanting to know more. Uh, about the God of the universe, but we uh, praise you for uh, this reality that the spirit of truth has gone out from you, uh, and we also recognize, Lord, that uh, the truth about this life, about what we will face as we follow after you, um, is not an easy pill to swallow. In fact, you told your disciples, uh, I didn't tell you this in the beginning. Uh, I, I've, I've waited till now to, to really drop this on you, but here's the life that lies ahead. And so I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves right in the mix of your calling and your love and your grace and your truth and your empowering spirit uh, and the difficulty that is guaranteed in this life as we follow after you. Would you teach us to live in that tension? Uh, as you came and taught your original disciples, hey, I need to prepare you for this. This is what life will be like. Uh, would you prepare us, Lord? Would you shape us with these same words and help uh, open our eyes to how we can um, 
walk after you in a way that's uh, healthy and vibrant with eyes wide open. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is hard. The world is a messed up place. Uh, Something is deeply wrong with this world that we've inherited. Things are not as they should be. And things are so messed up, it's so wrong that even fallen humanity in our spiritual stupor can universally recognize that the world is not as it should be. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and backgrounds can recognize uh, that something is deeply wrong. But what exactly is the problem? How do we define it? How can we describe it? Uh, and, And therefore, what solution makes the most sense? On this, we begin to diverge wildly as we lean in and try to define it. Perhaps the problem is just economic inequality or even religion that has created divisions between human beings. And the solution is communism. Perhaps the problem is that we constantly form attachments to the things of this world uh, before they're ripped away from us, causing a state of misery. So the solution then is to detach from the things of this world through the practice of Zen Buddhism in order to stop the pain. Uh, Perhaps the problem is just a lack of modern secular education. so that we just don't know basic facts Uh, about humanity and the world from a secular perspective. And so if we could go out and just educate everyone, if if everyone had a couple of degrees, uh, then our problems would begin to evaporate and the world would shift back to the place that it should be. But as followers of Jesus, we actually believe that the problem is far deeper than any of those things. That the problem is actually much more profound and it goes all the way back to the beginning. To a garden, to our first parents, to a place uh, that was filled with intimacy and beauty and stability and the presence of God. But we're told that into that place, Uh, an enemy came in the form of a serpent. And we're actually not told much about this enemy in the opening pages of Scripture, other than uh, the fact we can discern he is at war with God, that he has come to mislead Adam and Eve and to plunge the world into a state of chaos. And it works. So, from the opening pages of Scripture, we see that we have a very real enemy uh, playing on the disordered desires that were lying dormant in the human heart. And as Adam and Eve multiply out into families and cultures and communities, 
we see that the problems then uh, within the human heart, drawn out by the enemy, become sort of ingrained and established within human systems and human societies. When you have a bunch of people, all of a sudden you get what we call culture, uh, patterns of uh, relating to one another. And our, our sin, our issues, then becomes embedded within uh, cultures and societies themselves. So the problem, from a biblical perspective, is that you've got rear, 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 real spiritual beings who are in league with the enemy, playing to the disordered desires that we find within our hearts, uh, and, and then enshrining those things into human cultures and societies to the point where the, those human cultures and societies themselves almost take on their own life, their own momentum. There's this odd relationship where a bunch of human beings come together and sort of form the culture, and then the culture almost takes on a life of its own and begins to form human beings. Uh, and yet, because of the state of humanity and the role that the enemy is playing in our reality, uh, when it comes to human cultures, we see that they take on this unique life that is then set in opposition to God and His kingdom. And so it's into this world of spiritual darkness with dark forces playing to disordered desires, establishing cultures and societies and communities naturally set in opposition to God and His kingdom. It's into that world that Jesus of Nazareth comes, bringing the light, announcing the arrival of a new kingdom, announcing the fact that now the tide of humanity is going to turn, that things are going to start running the opposite direction because of what He is inaugurating on earth. In and through Him, light is breaking into the darkness and things are beginning to change. He says, I've come to rescue, to save, to redeem broken humanity from the power of Satan, sin, and death. But notice, for our purposes this morning, that as the kingdom of heaven is announced and inaugurated and begins to spread into our world, it is not spreading into a vacuum. It is not advancing into empty space. From a biblical perspective, I think we could say there's no such thing as neutral territory within the cosmos. So as the kingdom of heaven advances, it's actually slamming into something that is naturally in opposition to it. Something that wants to fight back, that wants to snuff out the light, that wants to stop the kingdom of God. It is confronting already established kingdoms and powers and rulers and authorities, some of which we can see and some of which we cannot see. It is challenging, undermining, overturning broken human cultures, or what we would call the world and its ways. Uh, the cross 
within the biblical storyline is an act of warfare, and what follows is war. Ephesians 6 says it this way, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood or human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So from a biblical perspective, we would say our true enemy or enemies are unseen enemies. It's not flesh and blood. But because of the vulnerable state of humanity, those unseen enemies then manifest themselves through broken human beings and broken human cultures. We are locked in a struggle as followers of Jesus, which on the surface, if you just read the news, it looks like human beings fighting human beings. But the Scriptures say it's actually deeper than that. There's actually something more sinister lurking behind that, pitting human beings against one another. It's powered, fueled, directed by these spiritual forces of darkness that are directing our disordered human desires uh, and, and shaping uh, corrupted patterns of culture. And therefore, in light of all of that, and the big picture of the story, uh, the big picture story that the Scriptures are telling, in light of all that, now as you zoom into your life, you imagine Jesus in the room speaking to you. He's got all of that as the backdrop. He understands reality way better than we do. And He says, I want you as a follower of Jesus, to expect pushback. I want you to expect that as you carry my light and beauty and gospel and forgiveness into the world, the world's not going to be super excited about that. Which, which in a sense, in the, in the um, microcosm, on a small scale, is actually kind of confusing. If you just think I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm carrying light. I have this message of forgiveness and beauty and the grace of God and eternal life that isn't even based on your merit. It's not even based on the, on the evil or good that you do. It's based on God in your place. I mean, we have this stunning message to carry into the world. And in theory, logically, that message should be received with open arms by every single human being on the planet. The first disciples to follow Jesus should have, in theory, should have brought the entire known world to Jesus within a generation or two. A message that good and that beautiful and that pure and that shocking should have rippled out effortlessly across the world. But it didn't. There's something else at work in human hearts and in human culture that has bitterly resisted the gospel that has gone out. It only makes sense if you understand the bigger picture story of humanity and God, the backdrop with which Jesus is speaking. Because as his disciples go out into the world, they're met with something very different than what we would expect, than what I would expect. 
And Jesus told them in advance. He used these words. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, those patterns and those people, to the dominion of darkness, if you belonged to that, it would love you as its own. You wouldn't face opposition. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. He goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All this I have told you, Jesus says, so that you will not fall away. Uh, they will put you out of the synagogue or, or the cultural centers of power, uh, the place of belonging and acceptance. You will be thrown out of those places. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. I am making the world a better place by eliminating you from it. They think they're serving God. Or in some cultures, they're gods. Or in secular cultures, the good life and their vision of what society should look like. They think they're doing a service to God and humanity by eliminating you and the gospel. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember, carry this in your heart, remember that I told you in advance and warned you about this. It's the only way you're going to persevere through what's coming is if you know that it's coming. And so as followers of Jesus who have received the Holy Spirit, our calling is to, to carry the gospel into the world. We, we are compelled to bring hope into a world that has no hope. And as someone who was on the other side of that equation for decades of my life, I am so grateful that people persevered in the face of opposition to bring the gospel and the reality of Jesus into my life. That is our call. We have to do that. But Jesus says, as you do, you have to expect pushback. It, people aren't just going to accept. It's the most beautiful, compelling message the world has ever heard. And yet, curiously, Jesus came to his own, as scriptures say, the, the, his, the, his own did not receive him. The very people who were, who were most likely to to receive Jesus in the kingdom, rejected Jesus in the kingdom and crucified Him. We, we have to understand this basic pattern, this basic fact about our reality and, and be prepared for what comes. This, this, instead of evangelizing the entire known world, instead the, the first disciples faced a world that was bristling against them, that tried to destroy them. Every one of them was martyred. And as more disciples made more disciples, the world has attempted to snuff that out. Hebrews 11 says they were fed to lions and thrown into the fire. Uh, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Uh, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in, sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Uh, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. They wandered in deserts and mountains. They were thrown out of society, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And what's shocking to me is that this is the writer of Hebrews speaking past tense. 
Like all of this stuff has already gone down in the first couple years or decades of, of followers of Jesus going out into the world. Persecution came and has come in every conceivable form to resist the kingdom. Tens of millions of disciples have been killed specifically for their faith. From the very beginning, from Stephen and Peter and James and John and these names that we know, but it never stopped. It has continued through the ages. That persecution stretches right up to the present moment in which right now as we sit here this morning, uh, Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. Millions being put to death for their faith. And Jackson taught last week on the uh, pushback and resistance that we should expect as followers of Jesus in America, which isn't usually as overt or violent as it is in other places in the world, but which is often real and effective. And so as we figure out, oh, what is persecution? What does that mean in the American context? I think we could ask ourselves a couple questions that would get us thinking in the right way. So if we just step back and try and just view our context uh, from another perspective, we could ask, hey, why are so many people in America walking away from their faith? Decades of people, millions of people in our country walking away from their faith. Why is it so hard to witness to people in our country? Have you noticed that? Some of you who have been overseas will notice, man, it's way easier, for whatever reason, it's way easier to tell people about Jesus in other countries than it is here. Why is that? Why, why do I feel that type of... What would stop me from sharing about Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom with my neighbors, with my coworkers, with family members, with friends, with whatever? What's the source of that resistance? Well, part of the answer... And in our uh, modern secular context, lies in a distraction and temptation. There's all of these sort of glittering images that pull our hearts and our attention and sort of suck some of the vibrancy out of our faith. And so we could talk about that, but I think there's this force on the other side that we can only really frame as, as a form of persecution. There's this social pressure that works to silence followers of Jesus and undermine vibrant and passionate faith. It just looks different in our context than it would in others. Um, and this was confirmed for me when I started seeing followers of Jesus, our brothers and sisters from other countries, come to our country and say, yeah, you guys are facing a form of persecution here. These are people coming out of... Uh, violent regimes where people are being arrested and put to death. And so if they can come from those places and say, yeah, I see, I see something here, I sense something here that is, that is real, then that, that really got me to a place of saying, okay, I think I can use that language. If our brothers and sisters facing obvious persecution would also use that language in our same context. And so it would be fitting uh, for us to pray for ourselves to pray for followers of Jesus in America and what we're up against, that we would be aware of those forces, that God would give us the courage to uh, break free and transcend the forces that try to undermine our faith. And that would be totally fitting 
but it's also fitting that we have an awareness of our brothers and sisters in other places uh, where some of that opposition and that persecution is very obvious uh, and is very overt and is often um, very violent and in their faces. And so um, as we close and finish this morning, I want to take some time to pray for our brothers and sisters overseas who are facing a different type of persecution that we are and who are locked in this spiritual battle in a really obvious way. Uh, Paul, as he writes about spiritual warfare and the battle we're engaged in, he says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And as we close this morning, I think this would be a really fitting thing to pray over some of our brothers and sisters who are facing very obvious forms of persecution. And the way I want to do this is um, we're going to get specific. It would be really easy and um, not inappropriate to pray for the big picture. But rather than saying, hey, Lord, we pray for the hundred million followers of Jesus in China who are facing persecution uh, or highlighting the number of people who have been you know, put to death for following Jesus in Saudi Arabia or whatever it is, sometimes we can get lost in those big numbers. Um, and it, it, in reality, I think there's power in taking time to pray for individuals who are locked in that battle. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. Uh, we are going to pray for some specific people in a specific country. And while we have regions beyond churches in all sorts of countries all over the world who are facing persecution right now, one of the countries that needs urgent prayer in this hour is the nation of India. And some of you might know some of the backstory. I'm guessing most of us don't. And that's okay. But uh, over the last couple of years, India has really seen the rise of a militant Hinduism that has become increasingly popular and has begun to work its way into the government as well. And there's a lot of debate in their context whether or not those elections have been fair or they've been rigged or what's going on behind the scenes. But more and more um, radical Hindu representatives have made their way into the government and as a result, there's been open persecution that has broken out against the church in India. And so over the last couple of years, there's been uh, missionaries who have been expelled. There's been churches and Christian nonprofits that have been shut down or made illegal within their context. There are churches that have been uh, burned down or forced to go underground. There's been people who have been arrested for their faith. And just in the last couple of weeks, two states in India for the first time have passed anti-conversion bills, which means that it is now illegal in those states for you to tell somebody uh, about Jesus and, and invite them into the kingdom of God. If you do that, uh, you can be arrested, and many have been arrested uh, over the last few weeks since those laws have gone into effect. And so... Uh, as we're sitting here this morning, uh, houses are being burned, people are being arrested, uh, others are being beaten and intimidated. It, uh, things are not easy for our brothers and sisters, 
in India right now. And uh, I recently received a message from one of our regions beyond leaders in India, uh, a man by the name of... And this is what he said in his message. He said, uh, pray fervently without ceasing for the persecuted church throughout India, for those facing persecution, for those helping the persecuted, and for the persecutors, that the Spirit of God will touch their hearts to see the truth of the gospel. Uh, And with that message, he um, sent us a list of specific names and people who have been uh, targeted or arrested or beaten, but there were so many people on his list that we honestly wouldn't have time to pray through the entire list this morning. It was that long. And so uh, what I want us to do instead in uh, just a moment is we're going to break into small groups of three to five people and take some time to pray for the nation of India. And there's going to be some general prayers that are going to be up here and available for all the groups to pray, pray for. But I'm also going to, send, uh, to give a list of individual names and people to each group. So every group will have the opportunity to pray for a different set of people this morning who are brothers and sisters who we're relationally connected with, many of whom who we know by name uh, and are part of our regions beyond family, but who are in uh, a difficult place right now uh, as part of this giant battle that we're locked in, as part of the thing that Jesus warned his disciples about. I didn't tell you this before, but I'm going away. And as I do, you need to be equipped in this. You need to know that this is coming. And so we're not facing the same persecution, same type of persecution that they are today in our country, but we have an opportunity to stand in solidarity with them. And the thing they're asking for more than anything is prayer uh, in that context. And so um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to mess up the room circle up in groups, and I will come around and get you the names of some individuals uh, that we can be lifting up who are uh, facing persecution in this hour. But I'll start with prayer.